Please take out your Bibles and open to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Our reading as well as the content of our sermon this morning will be the first 10 verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in regards to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might, that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray before we hear from the Lord this morning. Lord God, we pray the grace of your presence and power to instill within us a greater understanding of your word. And Lord, for your grace to enable me to declare this truth to your people for the glory of your name, for the sanctification of the saints, for the salvation of the lost. Amen. Theology of the cross and the sufficiency of grace is the title of this morning's message. In this letter, Paul is dealing with a group of false teachers who had arrived in Corinth shortly after he left, seeking to undermine Paul's apostolic authority and office with the aim of establishing their own. They were openly critical of Paul's speaking abilities. They viewed him as weak in addition to voicing their low opinion of his personal presence. One attack after another. And the Corinthians, the congregation there, had come under the spell of these Jewish interlopers, intruders, trespassers into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom Paul sarcastically refers to as the super apostles or as the NASB has it, the the eminent ones. 
And they adhered uh, to a, a theology summed up by theologian Scott Haithman as an overrealized glory. An overrealized glory. Or we might put it as an overrealized eschatology. That is, God's glory is to be experienced now in its fullness, right here, right now. That means freedom from suffering, freedom from weakness, freedom from dangers, and things that hold you back and pull you down, Christian. They were hyper-spiritual charismatics, first century, who thought they could live a pain-free life as you, as you uh, levitate a few inches above everybody else. It was a first century form of your best life now theology. That's all it was. If you're really spiritual, if you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you will not live a life of weakness, suffering, and trouble. But rather, you will live a strong life of triumphalism. You ever heard that? Triumphalism? So Paul must deal with them directly, head on, because as they work to undermine his apostolic ministry, they are undermining the Corinthians' faith. Paul warned them back in chapter 11 and verse 15 that these are servants of Satan, and Satan masquerades as an angel of light. So the servants of Satan will surely masquerade as servants of righteousness. <clears throat> now this morning, we, we come to the climax of Paul's fool's speech, as it's referred to. Paul's fool's speech. He has been engaging in irony, which, by the way, was a rhetorical skill um, prized by the Greeks, where he mockingly mirrors the boastings of these false teachers regarding their spiritual gifts, their rhetorical skills, their um, ecstatic experiences, their credentials, and their ministerial, quote-unquote, successes. Now, to tackle those topics credentials and successes, um, the typical response would be to you know, list all your educational stuff, all the things you've done, the books you've written, the places that you've spoken at, awards that you have received. Remember, they came into town with letters of com commendation. Instead, the Apostle Paul, to, to show his successes, what does he list? I mean, he starts with his experiences of suffering. Last time, we see a list of numerous persecutions, constant danger, and routine privations, all for the sake of Christ. This is what I boast about. So these, these false teachers who, who, who call Paul weak could never endure what this man has faced. In fact, his weakness is a result of being called by Christ to preach the gospel. 
These false apostles preach a false gospel in order to avoid the kind of suffering and persecution that Paul has had to face. Friends, false teachers then and false teachers now want to be relevant. They don't want to offend anybody. Why? Because they want to be popular. That's why. They don't want to face the wrath of unbelievers when you preach the truth. Nor do they want to endure the persecutions that Paul describes as the cause of Christ. It's all for the cause of Christ. Today, false teachers are resorting to the safety of preaching social issues. That's safe, because that's what the majority want to hear in our time. And often, as the preacher goes, so go the people. Last week, I quoted a missionary, Zane Pratt, who came back from the field. He spoke at Southern Seminary. And this is so telling. He said, as American Christians, we overvalue safety. Prone as we are towards the same temptations that the Corinthians were facing, and that is towards a tendency to the theology of glory. The theology of glory. We want to be bigger. We want to be better. We want to be stronger. We want to be safer. But we don't want the theology of the cross. It's risks. The dangers of the cross. The threats of the cross. It's not safe. Just proclaiming it is not safe. Gathering here together, there's some risk. Amen? In some places more so than others. But there's a risk with the theology of the cross. A friend told me last week of a church that hasn't met for over a year because of COVID fear. A year. Desiring safety over risk. Now, I understand people susceptible, uh, the weak immune systems and so on. I'm not including that, but for the most part, people are cowering. Now, one of the members of that church, who apparently has become incredibly content um, watching church at home, said to my friend that, isn't it our duty to protect people? To which my friend responded, no. Our duty is to preach the gospel. Our duty is to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our duty. Friends, we will have an eternity for the theology of glory. An eternity. But now is the time for the theology of the cross. This is what Paul has been after in both letters to the Corinthians. He closes chapter 11. Look at it. Turn the page. Beginning in verse 30. Look at it. If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. In Damascus, the, the ethnarch under Eratos, the king, was guarding the city of the, of the Damascenes in order to seize me. That is the city of Damascus. And I was let down in a basket 
through a window in the wall and so escaped his hands. Let down a wall in the city of Damascus. While brave warriors scaled city walls to capture cities, Paul fled the city like a criminal, like a refugee. Now remember, friends, Paul grew up as an elite member of society. The Apostle Paul, he was a Jew of Jews. He was a Roman citizen. He didn't have to purchase his citizenship. He was born a Roman citizen. And in Acts 9, as he headed towards Damascus as an authority, as a persecutor of Christians, arrested by Christ as he was, called to be his an apostle, and shown the things that he must suffer for the sake of Christ, he left Damascus as the persecuted. He enters a persecutor, he departs as the persecuted. He came with all the pomp and all the glory of the Jewish high council to bind and persecute Christians. He entered with the pride of an oppressor, and he left in the humility of the oppressed. That was his first persecution in Damascus. He never forgot it, and it was but a foretaste of what was to come. So that brings us to the first 10 verses of chapter 12 as Paul continues to boast facetiously, about his own experiences and physical weakness. So in verse 1, notice, he says, boasting is necessary. Boasting is necessary. Now, it is believed by scholars that those words, boasting is necessary, had become a Corinthian slogan, picked up from the false teachers who entered in to the church there. They would have said something like this. It's necessary, man, to put your resume out there. It's necessary to, to, to put up those letters of commendation. Go ahead, parade your gifts, tout your experiences. I mean, hey, man, if it's true, it ain't bragging. Right? If you got it, flaunt it. So Paul continues to play their game. Although, very briefly, notice, as he quickly adds uh, to, to boasting is necessary uh, with the words, though it's not profitable. Skillfully engaging once again in a bit of irony, this in response to the false apostles' claims of receiving divine revelation and visions from God. You want to talk about visions? I can tell you about visions. You want to talk about divine revelation? Let's roll. Let's talk. Okay, by the way, claiming divine revelation and visions from God um, is one of the marks of false teachers. It's one of the marks of false teachers. We, in our day, men who depart from teaching all the scripture, men who hop around Men who will refuse to teach certain portions of Scripture that are, that are difficult, that are in your face, they'll start claiming some kind of revelation, some kind of vision, some kind of new insight to doctrine, something that's novel. If it's novel, it's not from the Lord. Friends, there is no new divine revelation. The canon is closed. 
Anything that any man says must be tested in light of the word of God. You go home and test what I say today. In light of this. They'll come and they'll say, you know, God has shown me this or he's told me that. To to, to seek a following. Now, the Lord's apostle, Paul, who did receive visions, who did pen the majority of the New Testament by way of divine inspiration... Nevertheless, he received all that. He was still reluctant to talk about these things. Yet he has a point to make to these super, these super apostles, to the so-called eminent ones, who were boasting in their ecstatic experiences, their super spirituality and visions. Okay, So this part now is broken up into three sections. Okay? As we enter into the text, It's broken into three sections. First, we see Paul's divine revelation. That's number one, revelation. Boasting is necessary. Though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, friends, Paul received numerous visions from the Lord. In the book of Acts, we see them, we read of them in in chapter 9, chapter 13, 16, 18, 20, 22, 23, and 27. Here, albeit reluctantly, he says, I'll give you a vision. I'll give you the granddaddy of them all. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Now, notice Paul speaks about himself in the third person. Because boasting in the first person is is so repugnant to him. Caught up into the third heaven. Now, in Jewish thinking, there are three levels of heaven. The first heaven is the immediate atmosphere where eagles fly and clouds pass by. Second heaven is where uh, the moon, sun, and stars are. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament his handiwork. And then the third heaven is the glorified presence of God, the, the throne of God. Isaiah saw it in Isaiah 6. When he saw it, he became undone, which means to be like unraveled at the seams. John saw it in the book of Revelation, and he fell like a dead man. So here, the third heaven, the glorified presence of God, we read, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. Verse 4, caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. Paradise, third heaven, synonymous. In Luke 23, verse 43, I think it is, Jesus said to the thief on the cross, the one who came to faith, the other one went to hell. To the one who came to faith, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, the letter to uh, the church in Ephesus, um, the Lord Jesus says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So paradise equals the third heaven. 
It's the glorified presence of God. And, and notice, Paul, he, he doesn't understand uh, the, the mechanics of his experience of, of paradise, the third heaven. Notice he said, whether in the body, I, I do not know. Or out of the body, I, I do not know. God knows, but I don't. And it doesn't really matter. Because he knows how it happened, Paul doesn't know how it happened, but he does know when it happened. Notice, 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians, okay? Now, 2 Corinthians was written in the mid-50s of the first century, so that would put this heaven, heavenly experience somewhere around the time of 40 to 42 um, A.D., and I must say that, that some have placed this, the timing of this account with when uh, the, the time in which Paul was stoned at Lystra, which is recorded in Acts 14. They said that he was left for dead probably because he died and he was taken up into heaven and given this vision. But that occurred in 45 to 46 AD, which would have been 10 years before 2 Corinthians. Now, 14 years before would have most likely been when Paul was in, when he, he was either in Antioch or Tarsus before his first missionary journey. Remember, they were sent off. Paul and Barnabas were sent off in Acts 13. They, they lay, laid hands upon them, and the Lord said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then they laid hands on them and sent them away. Which means Paul would have received this glorious vision before that departure. Why would God do that? Most certainly because he was going to suffer more than any man of God in history. And perhaps it was to strengthen him for all of that, that suffering, giving him a glimpse of the glory that is to come. That's why, you know, when Paul said in Romans 8, verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He wasn't speculating. He knew exactly what he was talking about because he had been taken up into glory. Third heaven, paradise. The glorified presence of God, where he says, I heard. Notice, I heard. Inexpressible words. Which a man is not permitted to speak. He said, I was forbidden to relay what I heard and experienced in paradise. Okay, what, what, wherever it was that the brother heard, he understood, he understood that in the heavenly realm, we don't know what it was. We're not told. He's forbidden to communicate. So whatever it was, he's not permitted, and there are no earthly words to express what I heard. Because the veil between heaven and earth is still there. Y'all wouldn't understand, I think is what he's saying. Now, that's quite a contrast, is it not, to these fools today? who claim that they visited heaven. They come back, quote-unquote, come back and they write books about it. I saw Jesus riding on a rainbow-colored horse. Sure you did. 
And they have all these detailed conversations as though they're just casually, you know, chatting with Jesus. Well, in the very few biblical accounts we have with regard to anyone going into heaven, they fall like dead men. Daniel, the guy laid in half of a coma for three weeks. Partial coma, he, was, he didn't even know what to do, let alone what to say. Don't believe that nonsense. Paul says, look, I got as close to the throne as possible, heard things that are unlawful for me to even report to you. Right? How unlike these storytellers of today. How unlike these first century false apostles who boasted in their, in their so-called experiences. Paul breaks 14 years of silence after 14 years of pain, having been caught up into heaven and never mentions it again. Right? Lesson for us. Lesson for us. Point people to God rather than your own experiences. We're not to focus even on our testimony. Is it okay to share it? Of course. We should share our testimony. It's fine. But don't let it become the focus. I've heard far too many evangelists center on their testimony, and the gospel is overshadowed, if not altogether ignored. They give their testimony, and then they say, now, if you don't want to go to hell, repeat this prayer after me. You don't even hear the gospel. We're to focus on Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins. While he was hanging on that cross, he was bearing God's wrath in the place of sinners. That's what we declare. We focus on Christ raised from the dead for our justification. The Passover lambs of the Old Testament have been fulfilled in the Lamb of God, crucified before the foundation of the earth, as ordained by God. That's what we declare. We're not forgiven and made right with God based on what we do but only based on what Christ has done. So give your testimony and then run to what he's done. Paul said, my boasting, okay, although necessary here, it's necessary here and now, but it's not profitable. I mean, it's not helpful. What, what good is it for me to say to you, I went to heaven? What good does that do? No good. That doesn't help you. It just makes you feel like you got left out, right? I went to heaven, says Paul. You been to heaven? You seen paradise? I mean, it doesn't even help me. All it does is feed my pride, is what Paul is saying. It feeds into my pride. It brings praise to me. That's why preachers tell, who tell stories, it always seems as though they're the hero of their story. That's folly. Look at the Apostle Paul. Notice verse 5. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to to my weaknesses, okay, in playing the fool to expose the foolishness of these false apostles, Paul can surely boast about all of his experiences. 
But it's more important, notice, it's more important for Paul to, to boast in his weaknesses since, okay, since it is in this, my weaknesses that most tie me, that, that most closely tie me to the sufferings of Christ and the gospel he's called me to preach. In my weaknesses. Verse 6. For I do not wish to boast... I'm sorry, for if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth, but I refrain from this, so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me, or hears from me. So he's saying here, beloved, look, I'm not foolish if I do boast, because this really happened. I'm not lying. I'm telling the truth. Yet notice he refrained from capitalizing on his unparalleled experience. He could have. You want to talk about commendations? Let me give you some of mine. Paul was concerned, actually, that the Corinthians would think too highly of him. You see that there? He says, look, if, if you're going to assess me, do so by what, by what you see and hear from me day by day by day, not this extraordinary experience. Notice he says, I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. My gospel ministry. Example for us, applicable point, it is... Privately studying the Bible and spending quiet time with the Lord important? Yes. But that does not mean, if you do that every day of your Christian life, that you are more godly or more spiritually mature than another. I've heard people tell me, I've never missed a day of reading my Bible and spending quiet time with the Lord my entire Christian life. And then they talk about how mature they are. Reality is they're incredibly immature. It does not mean, mean that you're more spiritual or spiritually mature than someone who perhaps doesn't spend that time with the Lord every single morning, as you do. I think of moms. You look at their lives, and it's what you see and hear from them day after day after day that is a sign of their maturity. They might not be able to find the time to spend quiet time with the Lord every single morning because they have a baby thrown up on them. <laughs> Witness, moms. So now, verse 7. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. What was the thorn in his flesh, you ask? Well, scholars have speculated over the centuries. What was the thorn? Some ideas. Intense migraine headaches. An eye problem. Malaria, epilepsy, gout, gallstones, rheumatism, 
and even carnal lust. There have been endless viewpoints of what it may be. Now, it may have been the false teachers themselves, and there is some biblical precedence for that. In the book of Numbers and in the book of Ezekiel, it speaks of Israel's oppressors as a thorn in their flesh. Look, for instance, at Numbers 33, verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and as thorns in your sides. Ezekiel 28, verse 24. And there will be no more for the house of Israel a pricking briar or a painful thorn from any round about them who scorned them. That is the enemies of God's people. So here, the false teachers perhaps are the thorns like Israel's enemies. That makes sense in context to 2 Corinthians. There was given me, notice, there was given me, that means God allowed it. And if he allowed it, that means he ordained it. Amen? Is there anything God allows that he did not ordain to allow? No. So he, if it's the messengers, these false prophets, he ordained this, this messenger of Satan to torment me. So that is false teachers who come in under the influence of Satan, and Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Even so, we don't know for certain. We don't know exactly what it was, and I can say this, that believers throughout the centuries have been helped by the ambiguity of the thorn. So whatever your thorn is, you don't have to tie it to false teachers who've invaded your home (laughs) or neighborhood. You can just say, thank God that he's with me in the midst of my thorn, whatever it may be. Amen? Now, for Paul... It would have been easy for him to think, man, I am specially favored by God. I mean, who else has had such revelations as me? I must be a cut above the rest. To receive a revelation like that? Lesson. God gives us weaknesses. God gives us weaknesses to puncture our pride. Who gives them? God gives them. It was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me. Now, friends, we cannot ignore the mystery of providence here, and this is a way that God deals with us, and it's shown to us throughout redemptive history, throughout the pages of Scripture, and that is that both God and Satan are involved here. Again, both God and Satan are involved here. It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Just as we saw in Job, all this to, ex- to, to keep myself from boasting, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, question. Does Satan want Paul to remain humble? No, of course not. Satan wants us to exalt ourselves. So God sent a messenger of Satan to keep the man humble. He used this messenger of Satan to keep the man humble. Satan doesn't want you to remain humble. He wants you to boast. 
We saw this in Job. God allowed, God allowed Paul to be tested by this messenger. You think of uh, Joseph, his jealous brothers who wickedly sold him into slavery. They lied to their father. They took Joseph's coat. They dipped it in the blood of an animal. They took it home and said, Daddy, look, look, look. Joseph was consumed. He was ravaged by a wild beast. Liars. You see the, devil, the devil's fingerprints all over that. Amen? All over. Years later, when those brothers are forced to go to Egypt because there's a famine in the land, famine in the land brought about by God, they're starving to death, they go to Egypt, Joseph is in second, second command under Pharaoh. They don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. He eventually reveals himself to them. They're terrified, knowing that they had acted wickedly in years past against Joseph. And Joseph said in Genesis 50, verse 20, fear not. Brothers, fear not. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result and preserve many lives. Who was the primary cause? God. Sovereign God. The primary cause was sovereign God. The secondary cause was, was Joseph's jealous, envious brothers who carried out their wicked desire by way of God's providence, God who did not restrain their evil at that time. Psalm 105 explains it for us, notice. Verse 16, he, God, called for a famine upon the land. He, God, broke the whole staff of bread. Verse 17, he, God, sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They, the brothers and the slave traders, afflicted his feet with fetters. See, it's both and. Sovereign God, wicked men. That is to say, friends, dark events never come into our lives apart from the providential rule and overrule of the Lord God Almighty. They have been filtered through the hands of a loving heavenly father before they ever touch us. Lesson. It's important that we recognize God's sovereignty in our weaknesses. It's important that we recognize God's sovereignty in our weaknesses. He is sovereign over them. Verse 8. Now concerning this, concerning this thorn sent to me from God, this messenger of Satan, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. What does that remind you of? Three times. Jesus in the prayer, whoever said that. It's the voice of a child I often hear answering my questions from the Bible, and I go home and rejoice. 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, hours before the cross, Father, Father, if it is possible, please let this cup pass from me. Cup of what? Cup of God's wrath. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What was the Lord's answer? No. Jesus knew it was no. In his humanity, we see there the, the, the strain of it all. He's fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. But we see on display his humanity. Father, please, please. He'd never experienced separation from the Father. He was about to face hell. Hell descended. Jesus didn't go to hell. Hell came to him on the cross. The infinite son of God was able to suffer infinite hell because he's infinite. No. Friends, let me ask you a question. How often have you heard the popular saying, God will never give you more than you can handle? That's another American evangelical slogan. You find it on Instagram memes, plaques, coffee cups, hats, shirts, bumper stickers. Guess what? Despite its popularity, that slogan is found nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. Now, granted, they probably are mistaking what is said in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, but will always leave the way of escape. But the fact is, um, God sometimes does give us more than we can handle. Witness, on the right, middle, left. Of course he does. By way of trials, troubles, and thorns. I can't handle it. It's unbearable. There's no light at the end of the tunnel, Lord. So I'm praying, would you please remove this? And guess what? The answer may be no. It may be no. Verse 9, after praying three times, and with Paul that probably means on several occasions, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in what? Pulling up your bootstraps and getting at it? Is that what it says? No. In weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. God's answer reveals for us that prayer is not some magical chant. Amen? Prayer is not a kind of abracadabra. I'm having to teach my grandson this. Prayer is not magic. You know, abracadabra, which gets us what we want only if we pray in just the right way with just the right motives, as some suggest. Friends, as a believer, our prayers are never unheard. They're never unheeded by God. And sometimes he leads us to pray for things. Yes, I said he leads us to pray for things that he will not give us. Why? So that we continue suffering and stumbling and bumbling along? Is that why? No. But that he might give us what he gave Paul. Something far greater than we ask for. Far greater than we ask for. Another lesson. 
is to recognize the sufficiency of God's grace in our weaknesses. I'm still learning this lesson. I haven't arrived, let me tell you that. I'm just the preacher. I'm a beggar. Praying, begging man. There's thorns I've had for years that have not been removed. Yet. It's like God is saying, Paul, if I take this thorn away, you will never learn the strength of weakness. If I take it away, you will never learn to rely upon my grace, but instead you will constantly be relying upon yourself and your own strength. My grace is all you need because power is perfected, perfected in weakness. It takes time to perfect something, amen? Think of a world-class athlete. They have not perfected their art overnight, but after years of struggle, pain, and suffering to master their art, whatever it may be. Friends, that is the overarching message of 2 Corinthians. Power is perfected in weakness, summarized into a single sentence right there. That's the message of this letter. A lesson we must learn in order to live joyfully as Christians with a greater and deeper, don't miss this, with a greater and deeper theology of the cross. And again, we'll have all eternity for the theology of glory. All eternity. But bearing a cross always precedes wearing a crown. Always. God's grace is not dependent upon our strength. It's not dependent upon our ease. It's not dependent upon our painlessness. And his grace is certainly not dependent upon our safety. God's grace is sufficient in and of itself for all of our lives, even if the thorn is not removed. Should I pray for it to be removed? Should you pray for it to be removed? <laughs> Please do. I'll pray for your thorns to be removed. You pray for mine to be removed. I'll beg until the day I die. Amen? Yes, we should. Pray that it will be taken away. But friends, God never promises that he will end every form of suffering in this life. He doesn't promise it anywhere. He has, however, promised to end all suffering in glory. And only in glory. To bring us safely across the Jordan and into the promised land. He has given us that promise. That is, we will enter into a new heaven and a new earth. And then, and there, every tear will be, will be wiped away. Because, this is a big because, in Christ, God's power was made perfect in weakness when God himself became a man. The God-man. And submitted himself 
to the weaknesses of this realm of humanity, obeying every command of God for us. For us. And then what appeared to be utter, absolute defeat, the ultimate sign of weakness, he died as a criminal on a Roman cross in shame, hanging there naked. His enemies pointed at him and said, oh, go ahead, behold, your king. Behold. The crowds mocked. Hell rejoiced. But it was in that apparent display of utter weakness that God, that God was unleashing his saving power of grace upon the world. The saving power of grace through that apparent sign of weakness. The way of Christ, friends, is the way of the cross. Right here. His power made perfect in weakness. Christ on the cross. So let me say this. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're watching, you're listening, you're not a believer, for anyone to think that you can do what God demands, you're in trouble. You're doomed. Then what? Repent of your pride. Repent of your self-dependence. To dare think that you can stand before God because you're a good person as I've said a thousand times, that is the epitome of self-righteousness. You not need a righteousness that comes from outside of you. You have none within you. You need righteousness imputed to you, and it's through Christ and him crucified, raised the third day, is the only way to be justified before a holy, righteous God who is a consuming fire. So repent and believe, and you too shall be saved by the weakness of the cross, apparent weakness, which is the power to God unto all who are being what? Saved. Verse 10, therefore, I am well content, writes Paul, with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. Notice that Paul doesn't just endure the pain, he embraces it. He embraces the suffering for the sake of Christ. And to boast more gladly, you want to talk about boasting, you, you, you false, wicked super apostles? I'll boast in my weakness. God's power is made perfect in my weakness. Seeing that in Christ, when I am weak, then, then, then I'm strong. Friends, let me close with this. Paul's personal history, his apostolic calling, are unique and co completely unlike ours, our problems, troubles, and trials. Completely unique. I'm not Paul. I'm not an apostle. I haven't seen the third heaven. I haven't seen the risen Christ as he did, nor have you. My circumstances and yours are completely different than the Apostle Paul, but it all applies. God has his own purposes for you as he works out his plan 
in his kingdom. Whatever that might entail, just as it does for each and every one of us, God's grace is always, always, always enough for those who are his. Amen? Always enough. For his power is perfected in weakness. That is the key, that is the point, that is the lesson of 2 Corinthians that we must never forget. And we still have a chapter and a half to go. And then we'll go to Joshua in the Old Testament. Where we learn we must fight. Where we learn we must fight. So he gives us weaknesses, friends. You say, why does he give us weakness? So that we learn to lean harder upon him. So that we learn to lean harder upon him, the God of grace. The harder we lean on him, the more grace he pours out in our lives. Again, the harder we lean upon him, the more grace he pours out in our lives. More grace comes to the believer through dependent faith. Working for our greatest good. Again, working for our greatest good by not removing, again, by not removing what we think is our greatest weakness. Growing in the theology of the cross, knowing that Jesus is the one who provides the grace and is the one who says, my grace is sufficient for you. And as we do, we can say with the Apostle Paul right here, for Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. And we can call upon the Lord as did the psalmist. We opened with this, Psalm 50, verse 15. Call, call on me in the day of trouble. Call on me, says the Lord. I will deliver you, and in the end, you, you will glorify me. You will glorify me. So with the deeper theology of the cross, beloved, we grow more highly, more highly to recognize the sufficiency of God's grace. We grow down with the theology of the cross. We grow up with a greater understanding of the sufficiency of God's grace to hold you to the end and re reveal and manifest his power in you and through you for the glory of his name. And then when we get to heaven... We'll be rejoicing in the finished work of the cross as we rejoice in the theology of glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Together we say, Amen and come Lord Jesus, come. We do thank you, Lord, for the sufficiency of grace. We're weak, we're helpless, and I lead the way. I'm a weak man. We need grace upon grace, and we pray that you'll pour it out more abundantly. So help us to learn the theology of the cross that we might more greatly rejoice in the sufficiency of your grace. For the glory of the name of your Son and the good of these your dear people, we pray. Amen.